All right. Good morning, church. We're going to continue in our series, The Story. And uh, we're going to jump right into uh, today's topic, Standing Tall, Falling Hard. We're in chapter 10. I think it's page 130, 131, right around there. If you have a copy of the story, if you're in your Bible, it's the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, we're actually, uh, in this section of the story, the book, it's covering 15 chapters of story in the Bible. And a lot of things happen in those 15 chapters, and there's this giant cast of characters that we can learn so much from, but we're going to be able to cover just a few things this morning. And just a quick recap, just so that we can kind of get a context as to where this story begins and what we're studying this morning. Remember that Israel was in Egypt in bondage and a slavery for 400 years. And God delivers them from that bondage and from that slavery. The story of the Exodus. He sets them free. And then on Mount Sinai, he uh, enters into a covenant relationship with Israel. And he establishes the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel basically has two purposes. One is to worship the one true God, her deliverer, who set her free. Two is to be a light for all the other nations of the world, to draw them to the one true God. So God establishes the spiritual and communal guidelines for Israel. He's rebuilding and refashioning the heart and soul of these people through the Ten Commandments and as well, of course, the giving of the law. God teaches them what it means to be holy, to be set apart from all the other nations And belong to God and God alone. How to be holy, set apart from all the other false gods of the nations who worship the one true God. And God brings Israel to the promised land. Excuse me. And in the promised land, Israel's part of the covenant was to be fulfilled through their obedience and trust and worship of the one true true God. But we've seen, even in the midst of their exodus and their journey, that kind of goes sideways. And two weeks ago, when we were studying the period of the judges, it went terribly sideways. Just awful stories, and we see this nation struggling to stay committed and and follow God and God alone. It was a dark period. In fact, it was so dark that these are the words that we read during that period. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that, which was right in his own eyes. So the study now, standing fall, falling hard, this falling hard, this whole, this whole story is in the midst of this spiritual and moral decay of the nation. That's where the story takes place. There's no point of reference. There's no standard, nothing to guide or to lead, except, except that which seems right to me in the moment. And that which seems right to you and to you and to you and to you and to you. Chaos. It is just absolute chaos. That's where this story takes place. And something's happening in this section of the story, this moment in the story, that's also very significant for the nation of Israel. Because they're moving from this period of the judges, when God was raising different people to try and correct the course of the nation. We're moving from the period of the judges to the period of the monarchs or the kings, where the nation is ruled by a king. Okay, really important crossroad because this period, the monarch, the monarchy, the period of the kings is going to kind of tell a whole incredible different story of the nation of Israel and, of course, uh, bring, bring us eventually into the New Testament with regards to kings and our Savior, the king. So, 
Very important transitioning happening. Now, in this world of spiritual chaos, in this world of moral chaos, our story begins. And the story begins with a remarkable woman named Hannah. So on page 130, chapter 10 in the story, or 1 Samuel, we're going to have um, briefly, uh, just a enough time to briefly take a look at three characters in these 15 chapters that we're trying to cover. Hannah, Samuel, and Saul. But very quickly in 1 Samuel, the story centers on Hannah. This is the only time she appears in all of the scripture here in 1 Samuel. And she is a spiritual giant. She is a spiritual giant in terms of her understanding of the nature of God's character and her heart for the Lord, her heart for God. Just a spiritual giant. We're told that she's barren. She can't have kids. The Lord has closed up her womb. And there is another wife in the picture, Penina, who provokes her, shames her, teases her, irritates her because God has closed her womb. Year after year after year after year. The family goes to Shiloh to offer worship and sacrifice. And Penina teases her, taunts her. And one time she's so upset, she's weeping so much that she's unable to eat. In utter anguish, in inconsolable weeping, she worships God. On page 130 in the story, we read this. Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. What a prayer. What a prayer. God, if you will grant to me my deepest longing, God, if you will just give me that which I desire the most in life, if you will give me a son, I'm going to give him back to you. He'll belong to you. I won't walk away happy. I won't go to Penin and say, na 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 This son is going to belong to you and to you alone. It's not about my happiness, my prayer being answered. It's about your glory, your purpose, and your will. This woman is not about doing that which is right in her own eyes. She is about submitting her sorrow, her bitterness, her anguish, her grief to God in worship. We should do a whole series on how do you relate to God? How do you worship God amidst sorrow, amidst heartache? How do you approach God and offer to him your grief, your anguish, your anger? Because life is hard at times. An amazing, an amazing example, this woman who prays. Eli is the priest at the time, and um, she thinks that Hannah is drunk. Hannah says, no, 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 I am praying out of my anguish. I'm praying out of this, this soul of mine that's so, so bitterly hurt. And God answers her prayer. And um, Samuel is born. And uh, Samuel then is given to God. In fact, if you're following along uh, on page 131, She goes back to Shiloh after Samuel is weaned and goes to see Eli again and says, I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he'll be given to the Lord. And then she worshiped the Lord there. See, Hannah understood the full meaning of this verse. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. See, Hannah understood that verse to mean that every aspect of her life, every aspect of her body, her being, everything that is Hannah was to be offered to God for his purpose, for his pleasure, for his honor, for his glory. Nothing was to be left out. It all belonged to him. And she set about making sure that was true in her life. Hannah's a striking contrast to the chaos of the nation. Everyone doing that which is right in their own eyes. Striking contrast. And then on page 131, we'll give in just two stanzas of this poem, this song that she prays to God. And within this poem, within this beautiful song to God, there are fundamental theological truths that Hannah applies to her life. Within this poem, within this song, there are fundamental theological truths that the nation of Israel and the leaders of the nation of Israel at times fail to apply to their life. So I'm going to read a portion of it. This is 1 Samuel 2. This is not included in the story, but I think it's so important to keep in mind what Hannah's heart is all about. She says, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. Hannah's saying God opposes the proud and the arrogant. Don't speak out of a heart. Don't be a proud, arrogant person. She continues, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. Did you hear that? For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. Hannah is saying there's a God and you are not him. God is sovereign. This is the foundation of joy for the Christian. His ways are not our ways. He does what he pleases in his time for his glory and his pleasure, not ours. Obvious, you say. Fundamental, you say. Yes, but do we live that way? Do we live that way? Psalm 139, we read, All the days ordained for me, all the days ordained for you, were written in your book before one of them came to be. God, who is love, sovereign over every aspect of my life and your life, every detail. He saw you formed in the dark of your mother's womb, the psalmist writes. Every moment of your life was recorded in his book and my life as well. God is sovereign. It is about him and his sovereign, loving rule over all. Many of you know Jerry Chopin. He was, uh, used to be the um, chair of our deacon board. He's been struggling with pancreatic cancer for two years. A few days ago, he left his home for the last time to enter into hospice care. Literally, he left home for the last time to go to his deathbed. And on his way home, before he left, he said goodbye to his house. And on his way to the um, hospice care, he passed by the used car lot that he has owned and run for many, many years in Joliet. And uh, they wanted to go by there and just see it just one last time because he's not going to see it ever again. And he spent so much of his life you know, pouring into the employees there in that business. If you know Jerry, he did it to honor God. 
he was faithful to God, that business. He wanted that business to bring glory to God, and God blessed him. So I, you know, Tracy, his wife, what was it like for Jerry? He's on his way to his death, but he passes by this, this used car lot that he's invested so much of himself in for God's glory. What was that like? Was that emotional? And her response was, well, he was just thanking God for how he blessed this little lot in Joliet so greatly, just appreciating the many years that God gave us there. God is sovereign. And on his way to his deathbed, he passes by this little lot in Joliet. And Jerry recognizes that it is God that was the source of that blessing. It is God who made things happen there. And he honors God as such. Contentment, gratitude, God is good. God is sovereign. These are lessons that Hannah is teaching us. Let's look at verse 9 and 10 quickly. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. And then look at these two phrases carefully. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. Those two phrases are going to time and time again appear in this story and in the continuing story of Israel. Those two phrases, not by strength one prevails, those who oppose the Lord will be broken. And when we see that phrase lived out in people's lives, there's going to be two things we'll see, either God's grace or we're going to just kind of remember what it means to fear the Lord and remember the consequences of opposing the Lord that apply to the stories that we're studying as well as to our own lives. Hannah is a woman who is a remarkable follower of God. She teaches us much about contentment, joy, what it means to worship God in the agony of our circumstance. She teaches us about surrender and God who is sovereign. Continuing on, on page 131 in the story, we read, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. So we are reminded, as Samuel is ministering before the Lord, what the condition of the people of Israel is like. The word of the Lord is rare. People are not talking about God. They're not exhibiting this sense of God's presence. They're not following him. They're not hearing from him. This is the context within which God raises up Samuel, the last judge, and the first prophet. Compare these words to what we read on page, I think it's 135, or maybe right next to page 132. So the word of the Lord is rare. Now we read these words. The Lord is with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. The word of the Lord was rare. Samuel's word, given by God, came to all Israel. So now God is doing something else within the nation Every single person in the nation, the whole nation understood that Samuel heard from God and communicated the words of God. And everybody understood that Samuel was a prophet. See, a prophet proclaimed the message given to him by God. The prophet's words were spoken to him from God 
and through God's authority. What the prophet said was not of man. It was of God. If you look up what the purpose of a prophet is in any good Bible dictionary, you might read something like this. Prophets were raised up to correct moral and religious abuses. And that just went bye-bye. And that was back. Hey, I love Wi-Fi. Prophets were raised up to communicate moral and spiritual truths to help people understand the character and nature of God and how his sovereign rule and authority over the whole world and over people was deeply connected and rooted in his character, in his nature, in his sovereign rule and authority. They were, they were raised up by God to point people back to God, to help people understand the nature of his character. Worship. The issue of worship was often a topic for the prophet. We've seen that already in the story of Israel, and Samuel does the same thing. He takes the word of the Lord concerning how Israel was to worship, and he brings that word to the nation of Israel. Forsake false gods. Worship God and God alone. Samuel is the first prophet among many prophets who will continue to say to Israel, worship God and God alone. Here's an example. Um, and Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, Israel, if you're really going back to God, if you really mean it this time, if you're genuine in your desire to follow God, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and asterisks and served the Lord only. Worship lies at the core of a Christ follower's life because we become what we worship. Worship lies at the core of a Christ follower's life because we become what we worship. The whole issue of worship permeates every story in the story. In fact, I would say that uh, worship is the central issue in all of the Bible, in all of the telling of the story of God's redeeming grace. It is the issue. And Israel was delivered from slavery and bondage, and they were taught by God to submit to him and to worship him and him alone. If we're followers of Christ, if we believe that Jesus has set us free from the bondage and slavery of sin, we are no longer to live for ourselves. We are to worship God and God alone. The Israelites are told, you shall have no other gods before me. Paul speaks to us as believers, and Paul says, and he, that is Jesus, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and was raised again. Paul also says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I, everything that is self, no longer lives. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Israel is warned over and over again. Israel is taught over and over again. Israel is admonished over and over again. Israel is commanded over and over again. Worship the one true living God. Forsake all other gods. And perhaps the most dire commentary on the condition of the nation of Israel comes from the prophet Jeremiah. He says, what fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? And then listen to these words. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. God says, through Jeremiah to the people, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. What or who are you really following? 
You ever wonder why life at times unfolds the way it does? Periods of confusion, anxiety, lack of direction. I wonder if it's a worship issue. Our heart, our mind, our body, we suffer physically, emotionally, psychologically when worship is not right. Do you go to church to worship or do you bring your worship to church? Do you do that which is right in your own eyes, life on your terms? What is it for you, pleasure? What is it for me? The many forms of self-worship, sex, food, ministry, happiness in marriage. Did you know that happiness in marriage can be an idol? That that's not a legitimate goal in marriage? For more information, join us at Reengage January 9th at 6.30 p.m. in the Red Room when we start again <laughs> our spring semester. <laughs> Registration is open now. <laughs> End of commercial. Back to your sermon. <laughs> How about the various accolades that you or I receive at work in your role as a parent, your talents and abilities or accomplishments? Good job, worship pastor. Nice job. Oh, I did a good job here. I'm a good worship pastor. That must mean, equal sign, I'm a great Christian. I'm a great person. That's my story. I'm Saul. Do great here. Wonderful. I mean, this is culture, right? He's a great basketball player. Therefore, we should follow, you know, his life. You know, meanwhile, there's mo- the morality is all over the place. There's no center. And, but because someone does something amazing in our culture, therefore, that's a great person. And we think that as, as Christians as well sometimes. You know, I was talking to someone at the end of the first service, and, and idols are hard for us to recognize, right? I was saying, we don't have a piece of wood, you know, a little carved, whatever, in, in a little room somewhere. And he came up to me and said, oh, that was my life. My mom was Buddhist. There was a room in our house, and in that room, there were these little tiny statues, little tiny things. And in front of each one, there was a little bowl. Sometimes there was rice there, some food that was offered up to that little idol, that little statue. That was his memory growing up with a mom who was Buddhist, Okay. So he understood, he understood what it means to have this environment where there are idols around. We struggle with that a little bit more, you know. Our children could be idols, okay. I've, I've known of families. I'm not going to let my child go on and serve the Lord on the mission field. That's dangerous. So we make this protection of our kids, this idol. And we say, no, he can't go serve God on the mission field. That would be awful. Okay. We have a capacity to manufacture idols that's beyond count. Usually of really good things. Usually of really good things. And all of these issues that we're talking about are brought to life in the characters that we're studying, especially in the story of Saul, which we'll get to in just a moment. On page 135, we read that Samuel appoints his sons to lead Israel, but those boys kind of blow it. They're incapable of leading. So here is what the people say to Samuel. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they kind of weren't nice. They said to him, you're old. You're an old man, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And Samuel may be old, but he's still following God, and he's distressed by this. He recognizes this is not a good thing, so he speaks to God about it. And God says, Samuel, the people have not rejected you. This is a worship issue, Samuel. It's a worship issue. They are rejecting me as king. So Samuel, tell you what, you go talk to the people, let them be, give them what they desire, but also warn them. So Samuel does. He tries again and again to warn them. If you're going to have a king, if you want a king, people, this is what's going to happen. Mom and dad, the king's going to take your son. Your sons, mom and dad, they're going to be taken out. They're going to be put on the front lines of the battle, behind the horses and the chariots, because they're way more valuable than sons. They're going to be on the front lines, at the head 
of all the worst of the battle. Is that what you want? Do you want a king? We want a king, all right? If, if, if you want a king, mom and dad, you know what's going to happen? The king's going to take your daughters. The king's going to take your daughters, and your daughter's going to bake and cook all day and all night for the king's executive team. That's what's going to happen. Do you want a king? We want a king. All right, if you want a king, you know what's going to happen to your sons? Some of your sons are going to be taken out of your home, and they're going to be put into these big factories, and they're going to churn out weapons of war day in and day out. And they're not going to be able to unionize. Is that what you want? We want a king. Okay, he's going to tax you. He's going to take a tenth of your cattle, your cereal, your wine, all your flocks. He's going to take all of that for him, for his use. Some of your sons are going to have to farm. One day, in fact, he's going to take you and you're going to become slaves for the king. Is that what you want? We want a king. Finally, Samuel says to the people, one day you're going to cry out and say, God, give us relief from this king. And this is their response in that moment. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Do you see their sin? What they're saying is, we want a person, a man, to lead us. We want a king, a man, to go out before us. We want a person, a man, to fight our battles. They no longer, it's a worship issue. They no longer worship God as king. They want a person, they want a man to follow. It's a worship issue. They refuse to believe that God, in his sovereignty over all things, would grant them victory in his time according to his will and his purpose. They refuse to worship him as king. It's a worship issue. So enter Saul, our third character that we have some time to look at. Saul, who is very tall, very dark, and very handsome, much like the speaker you are listening to today. He's, please don't laugh. Please, please don't laugh. He's described as a head taller than everyone else, which means that Saul is actually Nate Selk. Taken moments before the bear ran away in fear because he photobombed Nate Selk's photo. So um, Saul is handsome, very tall, and Saul does not want to be king. He does not want to be king. Samuel speaks to Saul, and uh, Saul, Saul is like, I don't think so. No way. And you know, essentially, Samuel, in fact, here are the words Samuel says to Saul. Saul, you and your family are going to be the desire of all of Israel. And Samuel says, what are you talking about? I mean, Saul says, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? No, my, my family, me, we come from a little tribe called Benjamin, and I'm from a little tiny clan in that tribe, which is insignificant. I may be tall and handsome, but not me. And Samuel says to Saul, no, 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 no. God will change your heart. You will be king. And so when the time finally comes for Saul to present it to the people as king, he's nowhere to be found. We're told that he's hiding in the supply closet <laughs> behind the shelf full of peas or something. He's just back there hiding. Where's Saul? Where's this king? And he comes out and he's presented as king. You know? And so he's got a meek kind of spirit about him. He's humble. And I would imagine he's a bit confused about all that is happening to him right now. This was not something that was on his radar. This was not something he was desiring. Now we're hearing Hannah's poem and prayer. God raises the humble. Okay, he exalts those who never thought they'd be exalted. And so Saul is presented as king. And Samuel's word, who comes from God, is fulfilled. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul in a mighty way, and Saul's heart is changed. And we're told that he has great success 
as a leader of the armies of Israel. He's given great success, victory in battle. And there are songs written about Saul and his leadership of the army. And this success is the beginning of Saul's downfall. If you were to go to Mayaguez, Puerto Rico, and I hope you're praying for that commonwealth, it's, it's still a very hurting island with a lot of hurting people. My mom and dad are from Mayaguez, Puerto Rico. And if you go to La Plaza Colón, basically the center of Mayaguez, the, the social center of, of Mayaguez, you're going to see uh, on one side this building. This is the town hall of Mayaguez, the political and civic center of, of Mayaguez. That's the entryway. It's a beautiful, beautiful building. On the other side of La Plaza Colón, facing the town hall, is this building. This is Our Lady of Candelaria Cathedral. Beautiful, beautiful cathedral. So we have the uh, town hall, and we have the church, and then in between we have this marble paved plaza. And this dates back to the 1700s, 1800s. And I can imagine over the centuries, the, the clergy and the priests and the spiritual leaders coming out of the church and then the civic leaders and the politicians and the mayor coming out of the town hall and they meet in this plaza and they play dominoes, which is the unofficial, official, amazing sport of Puerto Rico. And they talk and they have arroz con pollo, arroz y vichuelas, and they talk about the community and what's happening and they have this wonderful shared relationship of concern for the community. But they're two different, two different bodies of leadership, two different buildings. They're in the same area facing each other, but they're not interchangeable. Spiritual leaders, civic leaders. But there is a sense of teamwork, and I love this picture because this shows that. That's the town hall. That's the political center. And in front are these beautiful light displays of the three kings at Christmas time. They, we celebrate Santa Claus. In Puerto Rico, you celebrate Three Kings Day. It's kind of cool. But there it is on the town hall, this kind of wonderful intermingling of the spiritual and the political, okay? Clergy and, and leaders of, of, a, of the civic life of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez. But these two leadership bodies are not the same, and they're not interchangeable, okay? One is not the other. Saul misses this. Saul pays no attention to this. God has drawn a clear line. He did not call Saul to be the spiritual and political and civic leader of the nation. He's not this kind of totalitarian person who takes care of every facet of the life of the nation. There is Samuel the prophet who speaks for God, the spiritual guide, if you will, of the nation, who's speaking God's word, caring for the heart and soul at the spiritual level. And then there's the king that does not have the role of the priest. They're not interchangeable. They're not one and the same. Saul misses this. Saul has asked numerous times, wait for Samuel. Wait for Samuel to come. Wait for the priest to come to perform the priestly duties. And he doesn't. He does not wait. I can do this. I got this. Do you know who I am? I'm Saul. People are writing songs about me. I'm tall, dark, and handsome. I can take the boys to church. Come on, soldiers, let's go to church. I'll do the sacrifice. Okay? And remember, the prophet speaks the word of who? The Lord. This is not... Samuel's word, it is the word of the Lord. And it is a command, wait for Samuel. And Saul disobeys the command of the Lord. In fact, Samuel tells the people and the king, the king is expected to surrender to God in obedience just like all the other people were. And Saul misses this. His self-deception, his pride and arrogance are so deep that in chapter 15, Samuel confronts Saul because he again disobeyed the command of the Lord. 
And it's a very sad, sad moment in the story because Saul, like I have done, I'm making excuses. You know, you don't understand. It's not that bad. I'm blaming others. Those, it was the soldiers. It wasn't me. Okay, and he is just trying to backpedal and makes excuses. And Samuel, you know, you don't get it. And in the course of this confrontation with Samuel, Saul says to Samuel three times, the Lord your God, the Lord your God, the Lord your God. And so we see this distance between Saul and Samuel's God. Saul is saying to Samuel, okay, Samuel, I get it. I messed up. But look, it's okay. Let's, let's do the sacrifice. Do your priestly thing, even though I already did it. Do it, and we can worship the Lord your God. Samuel, I get it. I understand what you're saying. I really, really do. I don't want to be in trouble anymore. So do something. Fix this so, so I can be in good with the Lord, your God. You see the separation. What's happened with Saul's heart now? Something's changed deeply. We go from the guy hang, hiding behind the canopies. No, not me, not me, not me. I don't want to be king. Now in success, now in victory, pride has crept in little by little. In fact, in chapter 15, we're told that Saul builds a monument to himself. Imagine Samuel tapping on the shoulder. Uh, what are you doing, Saul? I'm building a monument to myself. It's awesome. <laughs> and it's tragic. And it's sad. God resists the proud. Are you hearing Hannah's prayer, Hannah's heart? Saul loses his sense of identity because he loses his connection to God in worship and submission to his sovereignty. Saul quite literally worships himself. And Saul quite literally becomes what he worships, a self-centered, prideful, arrogant, unable to see that his greatest need is spiritual, disconnected from God in his pride and in the darkness of his sin. It's a tragic story, and we learn an important lesson from Saul. God is far more interested in you than in anything you can do for him. God is far more interested in you than in what you can do for him. In 1 John, we read these words, this is love for God, to obey his commands. It's profoundly simple at times, the scriptures. How do you love God? Legitimate question. How do you love God? This is love for God, to obey his commands. His commands are not burdensome. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Love, connection, relationship, intimacy. How is that achieved? If you love me, you will obey what I command. In October, as a staff, pastoral staff and team, we had the opportunity to go to um, uh, Expeditions Unlimited in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Boy, I wish that was a little brighter. And we had a great time up at Devil's Lake as a staff. We go there each year. It's a wonderful time. I look forward to it. We have uh, times of teamwork and team building, prayer. We dream, we plan, and encourage one another. It is just one of my favorite weekends of all the year. And we had a great time uh, this year. It was one of the most beautiful weather-wise weekends ever I can remember at Devil's Lake. 
And part of uh, the time there is uh, a season where, as individuals, we just have some time to worship and be alone with God. And this year, the way that was structured is Pastor Domingo gave us uh, a recording that he had prepared. We got it on our phones, so I had my headphones. And this recording had a scripture reading, and Jason's in my head, encouraged me. It was awesome. And, and uh, he's reading scripture, and it was just wonderful. There's music to listen to, songs to listen to, and he had this outline to proceed through the recording that you followed. And so we were told, just go hike somewhere, find a spot by, your, by yourself, sit down, hit the play button, and, uh, and, and just be with God. And so that's what we did. And I remember sitting on this rock, beautiful fall colors everywhere, I'm listening to Jason, you know, and suddenly after a few moments, I got over that and I'm like, oh God, this is good. I'm hearing God. Uh, God's using Jason and what he's brought to us. I'm reading scripture. I'm following the guidelines, listening to music. And it's just a wonderful time just to be with God. And then part of that whole structure at one point was to read Psalm 139. I'm like, great, what's well, Psalm 139? My favorite Psalm. Awesome. So let's read Psalm 139. So I'm reading it. And I come across these words. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I read them once and just broke down. And you, if you know me, my, I wear my emotions on my sleeve, my elbow, my ankle, my kneecap, everywhere, just everywhere. And I'm, I'm just blubbering. And I could not stop reading these words. I would say in this moment as I'm with God, I was compelled by God to continue to read these words. So over and over, fighting through the tears, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, this pastor is not past issues of pride. In fact, I tell people there's no pride in my family. I took it all, <laughs> truth be told. You know, I've been, I, I mean, you know, pat on the back. Oh, good job, worship pastor. Oh, nice job, nice job. Equals good Christian, great person. Okay, that's me, I'm Saul. I'm not past that. I'm not past worrying about my reputation, how I come across, what I say, what I don't say. I'm not past that. Last night, last night, after preaching this message, I'm at home with Ruth, my wife, and we're talking, and I bring up this issue that, that, that I, and I'm talking to her about this person who did this, this certain thing a certain way, and I'm complaining about it. After this message, last night, I'm complaining to her, and I'm comparing how I would have done it so differently, this person, and I would have been so much more effective than this person. That's me. This is me last night. And Ruth says to me, well, you're being judgmental. <laughs> Nothing to say, right? And then she said, you've done that a lot. Last night after preaching this message. So I'm sitting there, listening to Jason, reading the psalm. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And God is just washing over me. And what I heard God saying to me through these words, you know, Carlos, stop comparing yourself. That's pride. Just stop it. I made you just offer praise because you're here because I made you. Carlos, stop equating whatever you think is successful in your ministry or in your life or in your marriage or whatever it is you're doing. Stop equating that with a heart that is right with me. Bring your worship and praise here, not here. Don't worship yourself. Don't be a Saul. I am not past any of that. I struggle way more than I care to admit with that, but it was God's word that washed over my soul and he kept speaking, speaking to me as I spoke to him these words. He's intimately equated with every detail of my life and your life. God is sovereign. There is a God and you are not him. 
This, my friends, is a cause for deep joy for you and for me wherever we are in life. Can we learn something from Hannah? Worship is the core issue for a Christ follower because we become what we worship. And God is far more interested in your heart and in my heart than in anything we could ever do for him. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to enter into these truths, to recognize that they come from your heart and that they are bread for our souls. So may we partake of the spiritual food and be changed to be more like Christ, not so that we can boast, but so that the name and fame of Christ might be proclaimed. Help us this week to have a spirit of gratitude and love towards those you have given to us to care. May we say no to pride. May we be willing to let others help us. May we listen to your truth and your word and become doers of that word. We pray in Christ's name, amen.